Philippians 2, we'll read from verse 1 through 11. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to You again tonight. We're grateful, Father, to come and to uh, be able to lay our cares at your feet. But God, even more than that, to come and to worship. Lord, we don't want to come with just a list of, of wants or of needs or uh, kind of in the, the role of consumer. But God, we come to bow before you and to hear what you have to say and to worship you. God, you are, you are God, and you are in a category by yourself. You are majestic and glorious, and there is none other like you. God, we see your splendor of person, and then, God, we also see the, the marvel of your works, and especially, God, in this work of redemption, as we have just read this passage in Philippians 2 that describes something of the depths of condescension that Christ endures in becoming a man and the heights of exaltation that come with the completion of His work. God, we look at that work of redemption and we marvel and God, we also are grateful because of what you have done in bringing us to yourself. God, we ask that the glories of the salvation and the, uh, the benefits and the effects of the gospel would all bear upon us and that it would work its way into us and through us and into every part of our lives mind, heart, our, our physical bodies, God, that every aspect of our being would be permeated with gospel and that we would live in the light of these realities. God, we pray that you would not only um, 
make them to, to, to bear upon us and, and um, that the Spirit would, would work in us to, to work them out. But God, we pray that you would give us grace to do our part. Not that we have a part in saving ourselves, but God, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling because you have worked in us. That we would use the means that you've given to us to, to stir ourselves to greater love and greater obedience and a, a hotter pursuit of Christ. God, we pray that you would drive away every thought of righteousness that we might have that's produced by self. Every thought that would turn us to look away from Christ to something else. God, we pray that they would all be seen as emptiness and the, the foolishness that it is and that we'd turn again quickly to look to Him and that our hope would be firmly set upon Him. And God, seeing the glorious realities of this gospel and how they do bear upon us as we look into this passage tonight, we pray that our hearts would be stirred to say yes to anything that you ask, not because there's a rod sitting above us, a sword waiting to fall upon us, but because you have loved us so well and provided so well for us. God, we pray for um, so many who are still yet sick. And God, we pray that you would help them and that even in their sickness, they would know your nearness and that their hearts would long for that nearness. God, as many gather tomorrow with family and friends, we pray, God, that these realities would weigh upon us yet again and that as we're grateful that our gratitude toward you would not be the least of our gratitudes. God, give us openings to speak of the beauty and sufficiency of Christ. And we pray, God, that fruit would be born. God, help us as we sing again, as we look into your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are beginning chapter 2 of Philippians tonight, and um, it is uh, one of the better known passages, I suppose, in the book of Philippians. And um, as we begin to look at it, I want to just remind you quickly that this epistle that Paul writes here is one to a church that he loves dearly and uh, that he knows well. They know him well, and there's a mutual concern and care for one another. And Paul's love for the Philippians throughout the letter is obvious. We can see it in chapter 1 in verses 3 through 5 as he prays for them and says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. And then in verse 8, he tells them, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And in verse 19, I know that this 
will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's confident of their prayers for him. In chapter 2 and verse 12, he, he is confident of their obedience. You've always obeyed in my absence, now more so. Um, in chapter 3 and verse 16, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. And again, he's confident they have attained this standard. So keep there. You know, don't, don't let it slide. Chapter 4 and verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but lacked opportunity. And they have sent a gift to meet his needs and his imprisonment. And he mentions it again in verse 16. For even in Thessalonica... You send a gift more than once for my needs. And so there was an ongoing concern that they have for him. And he's concerned for them. Um, where there are a lot of letters that Paul writes to churches that deal with some issue. There's a problem. And I want to address the problem. That's not a huge concern in the book of Philippians. There's, there's an issue that, that of um, unity. But he doesn't like he doesn't rebuke them so much as just recommend that you know you, you labor hard and pursue that don't don't let that slide be diligent in that and there is no doctrinal issue that he picks up as one where they they've wandered away from truth and now he's calling them back to truth you don't see that in the book of philippians like you do in other letters in fact in verse 7 of chapter 1 after Praying for them, he tells them that it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. As, as I've been involved in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you've been a partaker in that also. In verse 9, he prays that their love would abound still more and more. He doesn't pray that they would have love because they don't have any, but you do have love. May it abound more. So he has only good things to say about them, really. And um, after explaining how God had cared for him in his imprisonment because they are concerned for him, he turns his attention to them in chapter 1 and verse 27 and tells them, only conduct yourselves... In a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we saw that over the past few weeks. And now in chapter 2, he continues that really. He doesn't start something completely new. Um, but he begins a long paragraph that is a significant paragraph. From verse 1 through verse 11 that we read. And it is one of great importance. Because it... For a number of reasons. One is because it illustrates... A very important truth. And that is that the profound doctrines of the Christian faith, the profound doctrines of the Christian faith, overflow with practical implications for Christian living. Those two things are not separate. Sometimes we hear sermons that are heavy on doctrine, and people tend to perhaps break into different categories. Some people hear Doctrinal sermons, they really like that because that's kind of where their minds work. But other people hear that and they think, oh, just give me something practical. I want something practical. And other people, you know, maybe you hear the practical sermon and you think, 
would you give us some, some more meat on it? That's just, just you know, practical stuff. But really, the two are not separate. Doctrinal sermons, there are practical implications that should be made. And there's no real practice that is enduring and does all the good that it should do that's devoid of doctrine. The two things are hand in hand. The Bible paints a picture of a Christian as a person whose head and heart is lifted up to glory and great doctrinal truths, but whose feet now are firmly planted on the soil here and are about practical obedience to God. And so we could say that you cannot really walk where you ought to walk in obedience unless your head and your heart are where they ought to be, taken up with the great doctrines of the faith. And if your head and your heart are where they ought to be, then how could your feet be anywhere other than where they ought to be in obedience to God? Now, you might wonder, where do you get that from this passage? And I think we see it this way. This passage is considered to be, by many, one of the most profound passages on the mystery of the Incarnation, including, as I mentioned in the prayer, the depths of His humiliation and the heights of His exaltation, and it all comes to us in a practical exhortation to duty. Here's what you ought to do, and here's the example of that. It's Christ. But it is a call to unity. Christian, live like this. And here's a picture of it in perfection. Here's the Christ who makes it possible. So great doctrinal content, but very practical implications. Paul's call here, though, goes beyond just Christian doctrine. It's not just a set of truths that we are called to live around. There is that. There are truths. And uh, we, we don't want to ignore the truth. But it's more than just truth. We are called to a person. We are joined to Christ Jesus. And the motive for Christian duty is not found primarily in the doctrine. I mean, there are plenty of people whose heads are swollen with the doctrine who don't ever move to the implications, right? So the motive is not the doctrine itself. The motive is Christ. We look at the doctrine and we love it because it's truth about Him. And we move to the implication because we love Him. And we cannot really remove, we should not remove the doctrine from the person. And so here, as Paul calls for unity, he doesn't call for unity just around a creed. And I'm not saying creeds are unimportant. It's not just a statement of faith that he holds before them. But it is experiential truth that they've gotten from being united to the living Lord Jesus. Let me give you an illustration that John MacArthur used that I thought was very helpful. He talked about how we could, we could be gathered together just around a truth or uh, be gathered together, you know, and, and the thing that kind of binds us together, if you will, is, uh, you know, a statement of faith or a particular doctrinal truth. And he talked about it 
being like a, a bunch of marbles, we're the marbles, and we're being held in a bag. And so the, the, the creed or the statement of faith or the doctrine is kind of an external thing that wraps around us and holds us all together. And that's great until someone gets you know, bugged about something in the statement of faith or there's a little disagreement about what some word says or whatever. And the bag bursts and the marbles, you know, they scatter. We hit the floor and we scatter. The difference, though, is if we're united around Christ as the person. And again, I'm not saying truth is unimportant, but if we're gathered around him because we're united to him, the picture is not of something external that wraps around us and holds us, but it's something internal. And he says it's more like a magnet with a bunch of metal shavings. You put the magnet down on the metal shavings, and the magnet sucks up all the metal shavings to itself. And it's not something wrapped on the outside holding it together. There's an internal force pulling all that together that won't let go. And he talked about how you know, the Christian gathered around Christ is more like that. We're called to a unity that's not just to a set of doctrines, but even more to this person. And he holds us together and he binds us together. And it's because we love him, again, that we, we love certain doctrines and we don't let them go. But it is the person. Well, as we come to this passage tonight, I want to kind of introduce it. And so I want to um, give a couple of things about introduction and then the structure of the passage. And we'll try to get into just a little bit of it tonight. So the first thing that I'd like to point out to you as we begin to consider this passage is the connection that this passage has to what went before. It is, there is a context, and it's not just lifted out of a context. And it's not as if when Paul gets to the end of verse 30 in chapter 1 that he writes down now chapter 2, you know, verse 1, and he starts something new. You understand, I think everyone here probably understands that someone much later adds the chapters and the verse numbers. And we're glad they did because if they didn't, it'd be very difficult to say turn to whatever passage, you know. But as helpful as they are, sometimes the way they're divided, they're not always divided in the most logical place in the context of what's being written. So, you know, in a book, sometimes you, you read chapter one and it's on a certain topic and you get to chapter two and it might be a completely different topic. And that's how they divided the book up. And that's why there's chapter two now, because I'm talking about something else. And maybe it's kind of related, but it's really something else. But that's not what Paul has done here. And I think it's obvious from the fact that the first word in chapter, chapter two and verse one is therefore. Or some of your translations may say so. But the point is, he's drawing you know, an inference, or he, he's, he's saying, based on what I've already said, let me tell you this. And it's a strong link to what has just come before. So, in chapter 2, we have an extension of the theme that he began in chapter 1 and verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He hasn't struck off on something completely different. In chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, he gave that general command, you remember? And then there were several applications of that general command. So he doesn't just leave it general, he gives some specifics. He tells them to stand firm. You may remember that that was a, a word used of a soldier who refuses to give up ground. He's not going to back up. 
He tells them to stand together. They're to be unified in one spirit and one mind. They're to strive together, not against each other, but together like a team opposing another force. We stand together for the purpose of the gospel and not just protecting the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel. And then they are to suffer together, verses 28 through 30. So as Paul urged the Philippians in chapter 1 to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel, the emphasis was really on how the church related to the world. There's opposition. It's been granted to you not only to believe but to suffer for his sake. Here's how you respond to that. You stand firm. You stand together. You strive together. You suffer together. But then in chapter 2, he continues the idea of of living in a way that's worthy of the gospel, but it relates more towards each other or how we relate to brothers and sisters within the body. We see this especially in verses 2 through 5. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In verse 14, he picks up again with kind of how they relate to the world. But for now, it's relating to one another. In The way Paul deals with this, he does something under the guidance of the Holy Spirit that's really helpful. And that is he portrays these truths with great balance. The Bible is always balanced. There's never an imbalance. We oftentimes find a a favorite topic or doctrine and we can very easily become imbalanced. I I used an example yesterday talking to some folks uh, that might be applicable here. Have you ever seen a guy who... um, Obviously, he's hitting the gym, the weight room, and his arms are massive, and his chest is thick, and his shoulders are broad, and you see him one day in a pair of shorts, and he's got chicken legs. Like, he skipped leg day, right? He skips leg day. There's this great imbalance. You know, from the waist up, he's like Mr. Atlas or whoever, and from the waist down, you know, he's somebody else. Um, we don't get to be, we don't get to skip leg day, spiritually, um, you know, every truth that God has presented is important. We don't get to kind of pick and choose. And as the Bible presents truths, it presents them balanced. And here, Paul holds before the Philippian believers, you're going to face a world that's hostile, that opposes you, and here's how you're to respond to them as a Christian, worthy of the gospel. You stand firm, you stand together, you strive together, you suffer well. But you don't only have to relate to people out there. You've got to relate to each other in the body. God has brought all of us together and put us together in a body. And if you can't get along in here, how are you going to deal with what's out there? And so he turns to them and says, now listen, you've also got to relate to each other this way. Be of one mind. Having the same spirit, having the same Love, the same mind, intent on one purpose. 
And so he holds both of those things before them and says both of these things are necessary. And so we, like the Philippians, we have to pray and labor to develop all the necessary graces to obey verses 27 through 30. To stand before a world that's watching and live in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. But we also have to labor to develop all the graces that are necessary to interact with one another. Because we are people and we're imperfect and we rub each other the wrong way sometimes. And, you know, we we get out of balance. Um, So we have to labor to do both of those. Both of them are necessary. And Paul gives us a remedy as we consider how to live with one another. Beginning in verse 2 and following. And I won't read it all again, but uh, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Now, I'm trying here to point out that there is a strong connection between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And I hope you see it. Um, so that if you go back and read it later, you say, oh yeah, there's, there's this connection. These two things are, are joined. And it's a continuation of the thought that he's begun in chapter 1 and verse 27. One toward the world, but now toward brothers and sisters. Here's how I'm to live. Now with those things in mind, I want to move to the second thing. And that is the theme of this paragraph and how it's laid out. The theme is not hard to discern. You can see it. In, in these verses, verses 2 and through 4, and again, I've already read it, but the theme of this paragraph is a call to unity. And it's a unity that's born of humility and self-forgetfulness. And if you don't have those two components, there's no way that you're going to live together with other people in unity. And we can get along for a little while until you know somebody brushes up against something that you really hold dear or, you know, Someone's having a bad day and they're not really ready to bend today. And so they get pushed a little bit and pushed back. But humility and self-forgetfulness are components that lead us to unity, that lead us to having the same mind. And so he says, again in verse 2, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. How, Paul? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And so he sets before us a selfless preoccupation with others because of Christ. Not self, but others. The structure here, several things here I'd like to point out. One, in verses 1 through 4, we have one long sentence in Greek. It's divided into shorter sentences in our English translations to help us to read it and comprehend. But it's one long sentence. And I mention that because um, by dividing it into sentences, we might not think that the ideas and the clauses are as united together as they are. But 
It's, it's a tightly written sentence, and the, the clauses are all kind of dependent upon one another. And so I just wanted to point that out. This is one idea being expressed. It's not a multiple, a multitude of ideas. They're, they're all linked together, and we can't you know, divide them in a way that's artificial that loses that unity. The verses 1 through 4 contain one command. The command is at the beginning of verse 2 where Paul says, Make my joy complete. But then the main exhortation or the, the idea that he's pressing on them is not just to make his joy complete. I think that's actually a motive that we'll get to in a moment. But it is that you be of the same mind. And then everything else that follows, a lot of those things that follows are... are um, are supporting verbs, supporting clauses. So the main idea, I want you to be of the same mind. Be unified in this way. So we could say, I guess, what follows helps describe what he means by that. For um, purposes of dealing with verses 1 through 11, that entire long paragraph, we'll probably divide it up in this way. Verses 1 and the very first part of verse 2 give five motives for unity. We'll, get, we'll look at those tonight, Lord willing. But then beginning in verse 2 and running through verse 4, there are marks of unity. What does unity look like? He describes it and kind of breaks it down for us. What's necessary? What are the necessary components for it? And then from verse 5 through 11, we have the means. It is what Christ has done. We also have the pattern and the example that Christ has given to us that's necessary for this unity. So we'll look at that in, uh, on Wednesday nights to come. But for tonight, I'd like for us to take up these motives for unity. And I'll read again verse 1 in the very first part of verse 2. Therefore... If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. Five motives here. Before we jump into the motives, there are a couple of pieces of information that I think you ought to know that'd be helpful to us. One is um, about the word if that appears four times in verse 2. Oftentimes when we use the word if, we're, we're expressing doubt. Yeah, if that was true. <laughs> but if doesn't always mean that. And it doesn't mean that here. Um, the way Greek grammar is laid out, there are actually four different conditional statements that can be expressed with kind of an if-then statement. And you can, for instance, you can express that I'm... Um, assuming that this is false. So if this is true, then that. But I'm assuming it's not true. An example of that would be saying something like, if pigs had wings, they could fly. But we all know pigs don't have wings, and we're not expecting to ever walk outside and see a pig with wings. It's a false statement. It's a, um, there is a statement that can be made with an if clause that assumes a probable future condition. It's not necessarily true right now, but we think it will probably be true. So I might say, if I find out, I'll let you know. And I expect that I will find out. 
I expect I'm going to learn that bit of information. I'll pass it on to you. How's so-and-so doing? Don't know yet, but if I find out, I'll let you know. Another, though, assumes that it's false. It's not there yet, but it's probably not going to happen. So if I learned that you were going to Washington, D.C. to visit, I might say, if you run into President Biden, tell him hello for me. Well, I don't really expect you're going to run into President Biden. And you don't really expect to run into President Biden. I assume that's false. Um, so that's another possibility. But then there is the, the first class condition, which is what we're dealing with here. And it assumes that the condition is true, at least for the sake of argument. And that's what's happening here. So when Paul says, if this is true, he's not saying, mm, I don't think it's really true. But if it were, he's, for the sake of argument at least, and I would say more than that because he's talking to believers. He's assuming these things are true. And since they're true, you ought to do this. All those ifs could be translated since. Or even because they're true. So you could read these verses to say something like this. Verse 1, because there is so much encouragement in Christ. Because there is consolation of love. Because you have the fellowship of the Spirit. Because you have received so much affection and compassion. Make my joy complete. So that's the first thing about the ifs. The second when you look at these four motives in verse 1 that are given to urge the Philippians to unity within the body of Christ at Philippi, the motives, again, are not doctrinal motives. Even when he says, because this is true. He's not saying because this doctrine is true. Rather, he's saying, because this has happened to you. You've experienced this. It's a spiritual reality that you presently know. Not just that you knew it at one time or you may know it at some point in the future, but you presently know this to be true, Christian. And because these things are present spiritual realities, he asked the question, as it were, how can you not be of the same mind? Well, let's look at these spiritual realities, these motives that he gives for in the first verse that are, are spiritual realities and then he gives a fifth that may surprise you we'll get there so the first because there is encouragement in christ the word encouragement means to come alongside someone for the purpose of encouraging them to counsel them to help them it's the same basic word that's used to describe the holy spirit when we call him the paraclete the divine comforter here Paul is saying that because you're a Christian, because you are united to Christ Jesus, you have experienced his help. It's not a question if you, uh, if you will. You have. You have experienced so much help from, you, from him. He has come alongside of you and helped you. And because Christ has so consistently and so faithfully helped you, this is how you ought to respond to him. By being of the same mind. Now, as in the previous section, he's not telling them to live in a certain way so that they can gain God's favor. Conduct yourself this way 
you know, in a worthy manner. Rather, he's saying, because you've received so much grace, so much help from Christ. How could you help do otherwise but live this way? You should live this way because so much grace has been shown to you. That's the idea here. Think of how he has helped you. Christian, not only in saving you, which is kind of, you know, we could think of as a past event, but presently, how much help Christ gives to you. He constantly is forgiving us. He even now intercedes for us. He strengthens us. He gives us wisdom when we ask. He blesses us with innumerable blessings. These are ongoing gifts that he gives to us. He gives us his spirit. He encourages us in all of these ways and more. And because this encouragement is the experience of the believer, we should live in a way that reflects that reality. The second motive that he lists here is the consolation of love. Because there is so much consolation of love. Have you not experienced that as a Christian? The constant loving tenderness of God in Christ Jesus. I mean, really, all of God's activities towards the believer are love. There's, there's nothing, no activity of the Heavenly Father toward the child of God that's not love. So much so that even when we look at His chastening, the book of Hebrews tells us very plainly, it is an act of love towards His children. He's treating you like a child. Everything is love towards His children. His love is seen not only looking backwards and we do that at times we remember that he demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us but his love is love now we're comforted constantly consoled strengthened by his love toward us the word translated consolation one one lexicon translates it this way the gentle cheering It pictures a tender comfort being given. If you take the parts of this, this word, it's a compound word. If you take the parts of it, the Greek word, and, and look at them, the idea that's expressed is of coming close to someone's side to whisper something in their ear, to whisper tender comfort to them. I mean, how many times have you seen that or experienced that? We see it not just in the spiritual realm, we see it in the world around us. You know, a... a a person misses a, a layup, an open layup, and his teammate comes up to him and he whispers in his ear, you know, let it go, let it go, let's go. Um, your child does something and is embarrassed in front of a crowd and you see that it's really affected them and you come to them and you bend down and you whisper in their ear and you encourage them, it's okay. Get up, let's go, it's okay. You see a brother or sister hurting, grieving, and you come to them in their hurt and you whisper in their ear and you comfort them and you give them words of comfort to assure them and to, to try to console them and strengthen them. And Paul here portrays God is coming near to his children for that purpose. 
to bring consolation to you, to whisper sweet words of comfort to you in your distress. And Paul says it in such a way as if to ask almost, believer, have you not experienced that? Have you not experienced so much of that that you look in anything he says to you and you say, yes, Lord, I'll do that. I don't want to say no to you. You've, you've come to me so many times with words of consolation. There's a third. He says, because there is so much fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship is, is that word koinonia that conveys not only fellowship, but also partnership and communion and sharing, a participation in. It's the word that he used in chapter 1 and verse 5 of the Philippian believers when he said, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, I always pray with joy in my every prayer for you all. You've been a, a partner in this ministry of the gospel. You've been a participant in it. As he's gone out and, and labored. But here it's not participation in the gospel ministry as, as Paul is going out to labor. Here it's a participation in the Holy Spirit. Talk about a motive to unity. You know, he United to Christ, but you've been united to the Spirit. The Spirit's united to you. He comes and indwells you. The unity of the church is called the unity of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul writes, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. We've all been made of one spirit. We're all the temple of the spirit of God, the habitation of the spirit. We are one in the spirit. Believer, you are indwelt by the spirit. You've received all of his benefits. You've been sealed by the spirit of promise. You, the spirit has become the guarantor of your eternal inheritance. You're filled with the spirit, empowered by the spirit, enabled by the spirit for service, gifted by the spirit, sanctified by the spirit. The Spirit prays for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. And His prayers for you are always answered because He always prays according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit has effected your salvation in regeneration, bringing you to God, making you alive. The Holy Spirit is the one who is affecting your sanctification. The Holy Spirit is the one who guarantees your glorification. He's teaching you. He produces fruit in you. He enables you to resist temptation. And you could go on and on. Because, Paul says, you have so much fellowship of the Spirit. Be of the same mind. How could you possibly disrupt that unity? Fourth. Because there's so much affection and compassion. This is a further working out of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I think. And because of His work, we have experienced affection and compassion. 
Affection is a word that is sometimes translated in the King James, bowels. We might speak of the heart. They would speak of, of the bowels or it's, it's the viscera, the gut. So when it speaks of affections here, it's speaking of deep affections, gut-wrenching emotion. It's an affection or a love that's more than surface level or just the appreciation of something that, that you look at and, and you perceive it and you admire it. Like a piece of art or of good music. You hear it and you think, wow, that's good. And you appreciate it. But this is more than that. It is an affection that goes beyond something you perceive merely. And it's a longing for. Have you ever been homesick? 1999, I think it was. During the Christmas break, I was in seminary during the Christmas break. Um, I went to a little town in Siberia. And on the way there, I went by myself. On the way there, I landed in, um, in Moscow. And there was arranged a driver to pick me up and take me to another airport and drop me off. And I'd catch a flight there to this town, Surgut. And they dropped me off at the airport. And I went up to the ticket counter, the little area, and handed them my ticket and they started talking, I didn't know what, pointing at the clock, and I thought, I, you know. And finally, they pointed at my ticket and the clock, and I put it all together. I had a six-hour layover in this airport. On it was, it was not like an airport you see much around here. It was, it was a wooden bench, and so I'm sitting there on this wooden bench, and I got so homesick. Sitting there by myself, couldn't talk to anybody. I'm sitting there thinking, I want to, unless they are friendly enough to tell me, hey, it's time now, go. I won't even know they called my flight because the flights are being called in Russian. And uh, I got really homesick. And then after I got to Surgut, two or three days in, um, I got word from the contact person here in the States to say that at a certain day and time, Elizabeth was going to call me on the church phone there in Surgut. Well, I was excited. And so that evening, I sat there at the church, and I'm looking at my watch, you know, and the time's getting closer, and I'm waiting for the phone to ring, and the time came, and I'm waiting for the phone to ring, and the time left, and I'm still waiting for the phone to ring. And then I was really homesick, you know. I was expecting a phone call that didn't come. I didn't know until I got home. She never got word she was supposed to call me. So, um, but just homesick, and it wasn't just like, sure wish I was at the house. I mean, it was, it was like a gut longing, you know. I want to be home right now. I want to be home. A longing. Paul, writing of affection, speaks of a longing. But I don't really think he's talking about any longing that you have. But it's the longing of the Spirit toward you. His affections for you are more than just a, a surface level, you know, pity, because I don't know if we can say appreciation. It goes beyond that to a, a, you know, human language applied here, but to a visceral longing. And again, all of his longings toward us are met. He prays with groanings that can't be uttered. He prays as he searches the heart of God, he prays with, according to the will of God. 
But he speaks not only of affections or longings, but also compassion. And here he expresses the idea of sympathy. You have received the longings of the Spirit towards you and the sympathy of God towards you. And believers, is it not true? He does pour out grace upon grace in your life. He has a heart of pity toward us. And it's not a heart that, that, you know, that looks and says, oh, that's pitiful and keeps walking. Or that's pitiful and I wish I could do something about it and I can't. But it is pity joined with power. And his pity is moved toward us. And he has worked toward us. And he's affected our salvation. And he is bringing us to completion. And so the question comes, or the statement comes in verse 2, if, pardon me, verse 1, if any affection and compassion, if that has come to you, then how could you not be of the same mind? To not be of the same mind would, in a sense, be evidence that these things are not true of you. And so we could... You know, verse 1, the ifs become false. If there's any encouragement, well, there's not. If there's any consolation love, and I don't know about that. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, not, not me. If any affection and compassion, evidence that's not true, live in a constant state of disunity, of, of disruption. And I'm not saying we're perfect. But because these things are true, here's what living in light of that looks like. That reflects well on that looks like. Be of the same mind. Labor toward that. It's not automatic. Labor toward that. Now, I mentioned that the first command in this paragraph is in verse 2. So that means that as Paul holds out these first motives, these first four motives... They're not commands. And what I'm trying to say is he doesn't pick these things up as a stick to drive you to obedience, to drive you towards unity. You better be unified because I've got this stick of encouragement, right? But rather, like God himself has drawn us with cords of love, Paul holds out all of these cords of love and says, look at what God has done. Look at the love of God toward you. Believer, be drawn toward unity. How can you not be drawn toward it? When all of these realities are your present experience. And then again, the fifth commandment at the beginning of verse 2. Or not commandment, pardon me. The fifth motive, which is the command. Make my joy complete. It's almost as if Paul says, would you do it for me? The Philippians loved Paul. Hearing that he was in prison, they were concerned about him. And one of Paul's purposes in writing was to comfort them in, his, in their concern for him. And so back in chapter 1 and verse 12, he, he tells them, I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then you remember in verse 18, he talks about how re he rejoices and he will rejoice even if death is what's next. Now... 
chapter 2, verse 2, make my joy complete. So he's not saying, I, I don't have any joy. You sure could make life better for me if, if you do this because life's just miserable right now. Rather, I'm rejoicing. God's been good. I will rejoice. But here is the way you could fill up my joy to the brim so that it's, it's, it's almost overflowing. Here's the icing on the cake of my joy. Be of the same mind. And just complete the whole picture. So caring about him. The thing that would make his joy sweeter still would be to learn that they were living together as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ of the same mind. And that is the fifth motive that he adds. Well, toward the world, they're to stand together, stand firm, strive together as a team, suffer together. In regards to each other, they're to look at this love that's been poured out toward them and with humility and self-forgetfulness, consider one another as more important than themselves. Be of the same mind. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving. It's one of my very favorite holidays. I do hope that um, before things maybe get loud at your house, you can take a few moments maybe and ponder verse 1. Talk about solid reasons for Thanksgiving. Encouragement in Christ. The consolations of His love. Fellowship of the Spirit. Affections, compassion, all poured out toward you. Not just back then sometime or somewhere up in the future. But now, believer. Now. Let's pray. It will be dismissed. God, you are always better to us than we deserved and you are consistent in your love toward us. God, we pray that you would help us to see things as they are and not as we imagine them to be sometimes. And God, for love of Christ and for gratitude for his grace and unfailing love toward us, we pray that we would live in a way that reflects well upon him and his gospel. We ask in Jesus' name.